The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hello, my friend, and welcome to another episode of Negotiate Anything. Thanks for spending time with us today. It's listeners like you in 181 different countries that have made Negotiate Anything the most popular negotiation and conflict resolution podcast in the world. I'm your host, Kwame Christian. I'm a business lawyer, mediator, professor, and the director of the American Negotiation Institute. Before we get started, I have two quick questions for you. Is negotiation a critical part of what you do? Do you need to resolve conflict and persuade at work? If you answered yes to both of those questions, visit our website to learn more about our negotiation workshops. We've traveled the country working with professionals just like you, and we'd love to have the opportunity to work with you too. Check out the link in the description to learn more. Lisa, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Kwame. It's exciting to get to be here. Yes. Well, it is exciting to return the favor. I was on your fantastic show uh, not too long ago, so I'm glad to have you on too. So how would you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? So my background is as a career change coach. So I help folks who are in a position where they're thinking, shoot, I don't love what I'm doing, but if not this, then what? Figure out how to navigate figuring out what they want, figuring out what's possible out there, figuring out the right product market fit, and then going and executing and making it happen. So I love helping people with figuring out who they are, what they value, what they prioritize, and then figure out a path to go get it, which is why I think our conversation today is going to be so juicy and good for your listeners. Yes, fantastic. And this introduction wouldn't be complete if you didn't give yourself a shout out with your podcast and the upcoming book, of course. Thank you. You are too kind. Uh, If you love Kwame and you want to get more of him in your life, you can listen to him on The Career Clarity Show, which is my podcast. Uh, And I have a brand new book comes out November 17th called Career Clarity, which is going to be talking way more in depth about, I imagine, a lot of the things we'll be touching on today. So, so excited to be putting that out. It's baby's first book. It is feeling like it's been inside of me for years and years and years, burning its way out into the universe. So I'm glad to finally have it so people can read it. They can learn from it. They can scribble all over it, whatever they got to do. It's an exciting time for sure. That's great. Well, congrats. Kudos. Kudos. So let's jump into the content. So we're talking about how to negotiate your career change and where negotiation and difficult conversations fit into the process. So the three things we're going to talk about today are first, defining what you want versus what you don't want, um, getting key people on board, and then lastly, setting yourself up for success in the transition. So let's start off with number one, defining what you want versus what you don't want. Well, Kwame, I feel like this is a really important part of strategizing about any kind of move you want to make in your career, whether you are working for yourself, whether you are an employee, whether you have aspirations of working for yourself, no matter where you are, when you get clear on what you want, it makes it so much easier to ask for it and get it. And a lot of people, especially high performers, you know, especially people who got good grades in school or who have been real good at riding up the corporate ladder, they can oftentimes get really lost in the, what can I do that I'm good at question instead of the, what do I enjoy doing that I want to do more of question. And I know for myself, you know, back when I was first starting out my career, 
I was working in communications consulting and I was working you know, steps away from the White House and working on all these big, sexy, interesting brands that were exciting to put on my resume. And if you look at it from the outside, it looked real cool. It looked like I was making power moves. But when you look at what I was doing day to day in the actual job, there was a lot of stuff that I didn't enjoy doing, but ended up doing because I was good at or I was saying yes on when I shouldn't have been saying yes. So one of the things that I have found in the work that I do with folks that's so important is creating that distinction between what you can do and what you want to do. And so one of the things that I give folks as a mental model to use when you're trying to establish this and figure it out for yourself is the methodology that, that we use called the four pillars of career fulfillment because we've helped coming up on 600 people at this point make career changes and transitions. And as you can imagine, when you work with 600 people on going through the same problem and solving the same problem, you learn a thing or two about what works and what helps people to set themselves up on a trajectory that's going to be happier, healthier, more sustainable versus people who just go, you know, same crap, different day, same crap, different job. And the four drivers of fulfillment that we consistently see people trying to optimize towards are number one, your strengths and your gifts. Number two, your personality traits and quirks. Number three, your magnetic interests. And then number four, your lifestyle needs. And so let me, let me break those down just a little bit for listeners here, and then we can figure out where to go from there in our conversation. But Pillar number one around your strengths and gifts is this question of out of all the things that you are capable of or interested in doing, which of those things gives you energy and do you enjoy doing? Because back in my day doing grassroots communication consulting work, I was the expert in the office at setting up Salesforce databases for my clients so they could be tracking what was going on. Did I enjoy Salesforce? Oh, hell no. That was not for me, but I had become indispensable in the office doing it. So every project like this was coming my way. So when I started to draw the distinction between what I could do and what I enjoyed doing, I realized, man, my career is going to be on this trajectory of being the database person that I do not want. So when I tapped into my energizing, naturally motivating strengths, it was much more about helping with branding and messaging and how you tell your story, which are pieces that have come into all the twists and turns that led me to the work that I do today. So pillar number one to be thinking about when you're trying to establish exactly what you want versus what you don't want is what are the strengths and gifts that energize me, that excite me, and that I feel like I've got room to keep growing and learning in my expertise in. This is awesome. I'm really excited about this because essentially this is like a, we're getting down to the meta level, right? Thinking about thinking because a lot of times we just get into a rut and we say, all right, I'm, this is what I'm going to do. I have this degree and I'm going to do this. And then I'm going to achieve these things that are set in front of me. But oftentimes it's not really set in front of us 
by ourselves. It's set in front of us by the, the work that we're doing, the job, our boss, our manager, or whatever society says the next level should be. Um, but what you're suggesting is we're taking some time and investigating what it is that really energizes us. What do we enjoy doing? And I think there's this mentality that uh, work doesn't count if, it, if you don't like it in certain industries, you know, it's like, this is a grind. It's supposed to be hard. That's part of the process. You don't like it. Good. It's you're on the right track then, you know, but you're, what we're doing is you're rejecting that. And you're saying, no, no, let's slow this down. Let's think about it and figure out what really works for us. Yes, absolutely. Because if you're going to negotiate for something, for a position, for an offer package, for an opportunity, whatever it is, you got to know what you're willing to trade off and what is non-negotiable, right? The must-haves. So establishing the strengths and gifts that you have, that you love using, that you want to have in your next opportunity makes it really easy to know what to say yes to and know what to say no thanks to. But the strengths and gifts is only a quarter of the puzzle. You know, when we're thinking about what fulfillment and delight in work could look like, oftentimes we're taught societally to only look at your strengths and gifts and responsibilities and capabilities. Because when you go look at indeed.com or linkedin.com and you look at their job postings, that's really the only piece that's highlighted in a job posting. But I would argue that there are three other critically important pieces to feeling a holistic sense of fulfillment and sustainability and fit. We got to take into consideration to make sure that this isn't just good on paper, but it feels good in reality for folks. Right. It makes so much sense. That's really interesting. And so for you, when you're working through this with people, when you're going through these four pillars, um, what type of resistance do you get from them as a coach? Well, one of the biggest points of resistance is the one you already articulated of work's not supposed to be fun. They call it work for a reason. And it's pretty rebellious and pretty revolutionary to think that you're allowed to enjoy your work and be energized by your work. But one of the reasons why I believe that this has to be true is that in life, in work, in humanity, we are always going to be coming up against some situations that don't feel good, that don't feel fun, that aren't our ideal. And the amount of energy, resourcefulness and resilience that we can bring to the table in those situations is a direct function of how we are protecting and cultivating our energy in the other situations, the easier situations, the less stressful situations. So if you're putting yourself in positions at work where you are drained, you're not generating energy, you are losing energy, the ripple effects of that into the rest of your life are pretty profound. Right? If you do not love what you do, when you get home and Kai is like, hey, daddy, let's go play, and you got nothing left in the tank, it affects how you show up as a parent. You know, If you don't get any energy or any excitement or motivation out of what you do in your day-to-day -day life, and then somebody asks you, hey, I'm having a medical emergency. Can you bring something over to my house? and you're feeling drained and feeling like you can't even get yourself out of bed, it affects how you show up as a friend, how you show up as a member of your community, how you show up as a, a, a spiritual or a, a worldly citizen. So there are going to be plenty of times in life that aren't going to align with our natural energy drivers. 
And we owe it to ourselves to lean into the stuff that does align with energy and with enjoyment when we have control and when we have choice to make it so that we can show up as humans the way that we want to in our world. Does your company invest in professional development training? If you believe that your team would benefit from a negotiation workshop, all you need to do is go to our website, fill out the workshop request form, and then we'll set up a time to chat. These workshops are completely customizable and we've done them all around the country. Negotiation and conflict resolution skills are beneficial across all professions, but they're especially useful in procurement, purchasing, sales, sourcing, and contract management. Our calendar is filling up quickly and we even have some workshops scheduled for next year. If you think you might want one, I'd suggest reaching out soon so you don't miss out. Check out the link in the description to learn more. And now, back to the show. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product, though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. uh, We'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so... We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. So I would say that is one of the biggest pieces of resistance that I face from folks. Um, Another piece of resistance that I face comes up in one of the other pillars, the, the personality pillar. And it's around this idea that you should be allowed to bring your full self to work. And the resistance comes up in this form of, you know, number one, work asks us to do a lot of code switching, you know, to only bring certain parts of our personality, certain parts of our experience to the table. Um, And number two, the resistance comes up around personality because people are worried that there are a lot of biases in place and a lot of discrimination barriers in place that make it feel unsafe. And I think one of the reasons why these four pillars of fulfillment are so important is because if you are going to work in a situation where you feel like it's not psychologically safe, where there are biases and discrimination happening against people who share any identity trait with you, be it gender identity, be it racial or ethnic identity, be it religious identity, it might be a good sign to get the heck out of that place and to look for places where it is safe for you to be. 
And honestly, when we talk about non-negotiables and things that are worth fighting for and things that are worth negotiating for, going to a place where you feel like your background, your experiences, your unique point of view are valued and needed and cherished can be worth more than money for a lot of people. Although obviously money is definitely still a piece of the picture and piece of the conversation because we've got that lifestyle pillar there too about your compensation and the benefits that you want and the kinds of flexibility that you need for the work to fit into your life the way that you want it to. So I think a lot of resistance comes up from some of the societal beliefs that we've been taught about what work is, what work's allowed to be, how much we're allowed to have enjoyment and flow and alignment in our lives. And I think that being willing to question those things and be a little rebellious, a little counterculture, is going to create the kinds of seismic shifts that we need to shift work and to shift workplaces as a whole to be places that are accepting, empowering, inclusive, equitable, you know, all the stuff that we talk about. But being willing to vote with your feet and walk your talk and be willing to leave to find something that could be better or negotiate for a change is a big piece of being able for us to move the needle on a societal level when we each have a very small locus of control and locus of influence in our own personal day-to-day lives. Right. This is great because one of the things that I really like about this is that you're pushing us to challenge our assumptions challenge the automatic thinking that comes into place because a lot of times it doesn't come from us. It comes from society, family, those type of things. Um, And we're not really being true to ourselves with what we're doing. And so really what this comes down to is an internal negotiation. Just like in an actual negotiation, we're going to challenge what somebody else says in ourselves, within ourselves, we're going to be challenging our own beliefs. Well, why do I believe that? Why do I believe that? How do I know that's true? Those type of things. And as you go through this introspective process with internally directed curiosity, that's when you figure out who you really are and what you really want. And so what's really interesting is that I've seen this all the time where somebody has a negotiation that on the surface is successful, but then you project it down into the future. It's unsuccessful because they didn't negotiate for what they really wanted because they weren't clear on what they really wanted. So going through this process and taking the time to understand what it is you want and why gives you the clarity you need in order to negotiate so effectively. And now I get it, clarity, that's your brand. It makes so much sense. (laughs) That is perfect. Well, likewise, when you talk about negotiate everything or negotiate anything, I think it can be really easy to, to miss all the different opportunities that we have to negotiate externally and negotiate internally. And a big piece of your framework that I want to make sure folks aren't missing in this moment is that the the compassionate side of the compassionate curiosity, that when you are doing these internal negotiations and you are navigating, what do I want? What do I need? What feels good for me? You can't shame yourself for what you want or what you need, right? You've got to be willing to take a deep look and say, huh, okay. I don't know if I was expecting that. I don't know how to react to that, but I'm going to allow for it to be true. I'm going to validate that this is what's coming up for me right now. I am not going to dismiss it. And I'm going to give myself the space for the curiosity to now explore what could this look like if I had a life full of X, Y, Z? 
what could this look like if I gave myself permission to want to work in a, a corporate environment that feels like this or where my story is valued? Or what would it look like if I'm allowed to want to shift my career to focus more on these strengths than my old strengths? Absolutely. And I think this is a perfect time to transition into the second part, which is getting key people on board. Because after you have this, this reawakening internally, after you go through this introspective process, and now you have some clarity for yourself, the people around you might be very surprised. And we need a lot of people on board in order to make these transitions effectively. So let's talk about getting key people on board. Where should we start? Well, you know, one of the reasons why sometimes we have to start with that internal negotiation process is because we can feel really nervous about how our decisions affect our ecosystem because there are a lot of interdependencies, right? When you think about making a career change and let's say, let's say you're married, your career change doesn't just affect you. It affects your spouse. It affects other people in your family, whether they are you know, parents, whether they're siblings, whether they're your children. And so identifying that you have, you exist in this web of interdependency can help you to really pinpoint the people who it's going to be most important to get on board with your change. So for a lot of us, it's the people who are most affected by our day-to-day -day lives and decisions, which are often partners and kiddos. And oftentimes your kiddos don't necessarily have much of a, a voice when it comes to what you're going to do or what you're not going to do. But wanting to include them and make them feel like they're a part of the decision can be a really important thing, especially if your change decision might involve, say, changing your geography and uprooting the kid from a, a school that they might really like to move somewhere else. So I think that we can focus a little bit more on the, the more immediate partners who are going to be affected but noticing and taking stock of who all the people are in your ecosystem who are going to care about your change can make a big difference. You know, I was speaking with somebody earlier today who isn't in a relationship and the biggest person who's going to be affected by this transition is a parent who had a vision of how this person's life was supposed to look, what this person was supposed to do, where they were supposed to move, who they were supposed to marry, like the whole shebang. And some of the fear around that is the nervousness of the rupture to the relationship or the rupture to the identity and the community membership around the family community or the cultural community, the social community or the geographic community. So there are a lot of potential ripple effects for making a change, especially if it's something that's a little bit bold and a little bit out there. So identifying who is likely to be affected and identifying what the possible outcomes of that effect could be is a really important negotiation preparation step for yourself. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think, I think about this in terms of just, let's think about it in more of a transactional business negotiation we still need to consider third parties. We always need to consider the people who are going to be impacted. And a lot of times we don't, and then our deals are sunk because one of those third parties doesn't like what's happening. And bringing it back to this context, thinking about our approach and the strategy, it probably makes a lot of sense to start having these conversations early on so it's less of a, of a, a jolt or shock to them when you decide to pull the trigger and, and make this decision. 
Absolutely. The two best strategies that I have seen folks use to make these transitions as seamless and peaceful as they can are number one, seed the idea. And I actually call this the softening the beaches technique <laughs> where, where you start by just sort of like throwing a little, a test balloon out there of darling, you know, I'm not happy in my work. I'm starting to think about making a transition right? And bringing somebody in early in the process and bringing them in even before there's anything concrete to react to, just to give them the heads up and the FYI, right? And people use this tactic all the time when they're trying to negotiate for sabbaticals at work, right? You go to your boss a year in advance and say, I'm feeling kind of burned out. I would love to be able to take a sabbatical one day. Is that possible? Right? And if you can get somebody on board when it's more conceptual and less concrete, then you stair-step them up in their commitment to your cause. And then it becomes easier and easier to increase and sort of up the ante with each of your asks of, hey boss, now that you're on board with me taking a sabbatical sometime in the future, I'm thinking maybe I do it Q4 2021. What do you think about that? Is that? Does that even seem possible? What would we need to do to make that happen, right? And so the same tactic of getting buy-in absolutely works with your partner of, hey, I'm not happy. I'm thinking about starting to look at something else. You know, and then a month later, hey, I've started looking at some other things. Here are some of the ideas that I'm looking at. So bring them into the conversation, make them feel like partners in it, make it feel not adversarial. That kind of process then can get you to the point that once you've found a direction or a change that feels good, it's easy for them to say yes, because they've seen your thought process. They have watched it every step of the way. They've seen this be deliberative and thoughtful and careful. And so they're happy to be on board and support you hundred percent. This but is great. Let's say there's somebody listening who's thinking, well, crap, I probably should have started this six months ago. And now I'm at a point where I think I know kind of what I want to change into, but, and I know it's going to feel a little bit abrupt. It's going to feel a little bit sudden to the person who I'm going to be trying to socialize this with. The second thing you can do if you do not have the luxury of time and runway to help you out is you can start with the shared values that you and this other person hold. Like we both want me to be happy. We both want me to be working in a place where I am not stressed out and pulling my hair out at the end of the day. We both want to have a really peaceful and lovely experience at home. We both want for me to come home with energy so that I can be present and focused with you. And if you can start with the head nodding and the agreement and establishing what you both hold in common, then when you start to socialize the piece about, here's what I'm thinking might be a new strategy to achieve this goal together, it grounds a conversation in a really different spot. And if you lead with vulnerability, even better. Saying, hey, I'm feeling a little bit nervous to share this because it's kind of new and kind of big, can immediately change the way that that person is responding to you from being potentially transactional or adversarial to wanting to help comfort and encourage you and help set you up for success. This is really good. I love all of this because um, essentially what you're saying is that uh, people start negotiating too late. We, we don't start negotiating too early, you know, early enough. Uh, one of the things I like to say about negotiation is that it's a never ending game of chess whenever we're interacting with people, we're constantly positioning ourselves and asking ourselves, what can I do to improve my position in this situation, in this relationship? And so you need to think ahead and recognize down the road, I'm going to have an important conversation with this person, but softening them, 
getting them familiar with it. It, it makes people a lot more comfortable with what's coming down the pike. And then in general, to your second point, when we're talking about values, I think that's a great place to go because we, we can at least start from a place of common values. I think we should all feel fulfilled. We should all be happy, right? People can agree with that. Great. So let's start there. And it generates some positive momentum for the rest of the conversation. I think this is a really strong approach that people can use not only in this context, but in all of their negotiations as well. Well, and let me jump into to your point about not starting early enough to give folks a little bit of comfort if you do need to jump into a negotiation conversation a little bit later than you would have liked. One of the biggest negotiation and momentum killers is somebody feeling surprised. If you enter a conversation with somebody and you, and this is like a, a neurobiological level thing, if the first emotional reaction they have to something that you're sharing is shock or surprise, they are no longer accessing the, the hormones and the emotional experience of happiness. They have gone into fight, flight, freeze mode. And the places that you typically go from that are not going to be the emotions that are going to be the most helpful for you to get what you want. People usually go from surprise, shock, freeze into anger, fight, defensiveness. They go into flight, which is the, the fear piece, the sadness piece. And none of those are going to help you move the needle the way that you want to. So if you can come up with a strategy to help manage the emotional experience somebody's going to have to hearing your news and hearing your information by seeding the conversation so that they don't go into surprise, you are immediately going to set yourself up for way more opportunities for an actual negotiation to happen and for you to get the outcome that you want instead of dropping a bomb on somebody and catching them totally off guard and unaware because the natural biological instinct is going to be to protect and defend instead of be collaborative. Exactly. Because change is scary. And so even if the change that you're proposing is good, it doesn't feel safe. And so you want to ease them into it for that. It makes a lot of sense. And I think this is a great time for us to transition into setting ourselves up for success in the transition. Because let's say we pull all this off. We are able to do this introspective process and learn what we want. We're able to get our loved ones and our friends on board to the transition. And then we're actually able to make the transition. But it's, there's a little bit of a change that has to happen in the way that people perceive you because now you're utilizing different skill sets. So finishing this up, when we're talking about managing that change in the transition, what does that look like? Well, one of the biggest things that I suggest that you think about in doing a transition successfully is cultivating a vision of who you want to be and how you want it to look at the end. Because if you can come up with an inspiring, motivating vision of your leadership identity or your professional identity, and you can come up with the ways that you want to feel stepping into your next opportunity or working with your new team, then it makes it really easy to reverse engineer and prescribe the behaviors that it's going to take to make that actually happen. So if your leadership identity and the vision that you cultivate for yourself is, I want to feel confident. I want to feel peaceful. I want to feel like I have a really great rapport established with my team. We can use those as the ideal outcomes and reverse engineer back to say, okay, what would it take for you to feel confident? 
What are the experiences that you want to have? What are the conversations you want to have? What's the knowledge you want to have to be able to access that state of being in your day to day? If you want to have great rapport with your team, what are the necessary conditions to make that possible? And you can then write out your own playbook for how to make the transition, not just happen, but stick and be sustainable and be successful and have some longevity to it so that you can feel good in something for a while. Because Kwame, there's nothing worse than somebody coming up with an incredible vision of what they want to go do, negotiating like a boss to make it happen, and then showing up on the first day and having that momentum or that head of steam just disappear. And then starting to sort of be swayed by the tides of what's going on at that organization, rather than feeling grounded in who they want to be, how they want to show up, and all the things that they have influence and control over, even as a newbie into a new position, a new team, a new organization, or even a new sector. So having a vision and having a sense of where you're driving the train and where you want to go makes it so much easier to then prescribe what you need to do in the first 30 days, first 90 days, to feel like it's going to work and like it's going to last for the long term. Yeah, because when it comes down to it, this is an identity shift too, right? We have to change how we see ourselves in many ways. And then if we get clarity on that, I keep using your word, it just makes so much sentence now. Um, when, once you get that clarity, then it's easier for you to, to show that to other people. Now they're, they're clearer on who you are and who you want to be. Now it's clearer for them what responsibilities they should give you and which ones aren't for you as well. And so really, this is, this is really fascinating because it's not just managing the negotiation in terms of speaking, but we're also managing the almost unspoken negotiation in terms of who you are um, and, and what people see in you. Yeah, there's, there's a dynamic at play when you're making a transition around your identity that oftentimes people don't recognize, which is that you are co-creating what you're stepping into, right? There are very few times when you are stepping into a job that already has every single job des description duty perfectly aligned and says exactly how you're going to be spending every minute of your day and who you're going to be working with and the only people you're going to be working with. We usually have a meaningful amount of influence and power to affect how we manifest in the opportunity that is in front of us. So remembering, hey, I get to choose how I show up today. I get to choose how I react to that today. I get to choose who I think I need to be talking to to be able to do my work successfully, who I want to be building relationships with, whether or not I want to be building relationships. If you recognize each one of those is a micro decision that has ripple effects and impact on how something's going to feel and how it's going to fit over the long term, it suddenly becomes a really interesting, you know, to use your example, long-term chess game of what's my next move and how does this set up some of the other doors I want to be open to me? What's my next opportunity and how does that create more growth potential for me as opposed to putting me into a box as the database person on the team? So recognizing that even when it doesn't feel like it, we may have more opportunity to influence and, and negotiate our way into and around situations than we might think can be an incredibly liberating and empowering way to notice opportunities to make things better, even right now in your current situation. Right. And Lisa, you know what I think the, the best way uh, for people to get started doing this is? 
buying your book. And so before you go, let them know again about the name of the book and the name of the podcast. Well, Kwame, thank you again for having me. I mean, you are serving people and living out so much of your vision and your leadership identity through this podcast. And I hope people are getting that and they are watching your TED Talk and they're getting your book too. But if this is resonating for anybody who's listening and you want to learn more about this, you can pick up the book Career Clarity at Amazon or anywhere that online books are sold. Given that we are in such a weird time right now, it's better to be distributing online than in person for the most part but it'll be available in audiobook, in print, or in ebook format. So you can take care of whatever modality you absorb and retain information best. Fantastic. Lisa, thank you so much for coming on the show today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Congratulations, you've just joined an elite club. By listening to a full episode, you're now officially on the Negotiate Anything team. So welcome aboard. What most team members do is they subscribe to the podcast because that allows them to automatically get the latest episodes of the show. The best things in life lie on the other side of difficult conversations. Keep learning, keep practicing, and keep getting better. Your relationships will improve, your career will soar, and you'll have the confidence you need to get the most out of these crucial conversations. Again, thank you for joining the team. We're excited to have you, and I will see you in the next episode. I'll catch you later.